Hey guys, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Church, and I want to welcome you to our online teachings. One of our core convictions as a church is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. Now, I know that for some of us, coming into a church building might be intimidating, it might be scary, and I get that. But I want you to know that there is always a place for you here at New Life and that you were made for real in-person community. We meet on Sundays in downtown Wayland. You can check out our website for more information on service times. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through his word. Love you guys. Thank you guys so much. I love that we are a church that has students serving all over the place. Man, we... We have students serving on stage here. We have students serving in our tech booth kids ministry. We really believe in the value of students and young people serving in our church. Before I jump into the teaching uh, this morning, I want to give you guys a really brief and really exciting update. So as many of you know, we've been talking about this space next door. Some of you are probably sick of hearing about it at this point, but we're going to keep talking about it because we really believe uh, this is where God is leading us and we're really excited for where things are headed. And so we're making that space open every single Sunday morning. Feel free to pop over there after service, check out what's going on. There's a lot of updates happening every week. Uh, electrical has made some significant process this progress this last week. Some just really exciting things. Uh, but the thing I'm, I'm most excited to let you know today, this just uh, is so, so cool. I had a phone call with somebody in our church on Friday of this past week. And uh, this person, was able to kind of go and see the space being built up, the walls being built up. And he told me, I feel like God has really been prodding me to give towards this project. And uh, so what he said he would do is he said, I want to match all giving for the remainder of May from here on out, up to $10,000, uh, which is incredibly cool. So if you, if you give towards this project from today through the end of May, $100 becomes $200, $1,000 becomes $2,000, and so on and so forth. Hopefully you can do basic math, uh, something I struggle with. But all of that to say, man, I just, uh, I'm blown away by the generosity of people in our church because, yeah, like $10,000, that is a lot of money. Uh, but for me, what's more powerful than that is the story behind that. This person doesn't just have tons and tons of money sitting aside. They have needs in their lives, and they are feeling God say, hey, step into faith-filled living and watch me do what only I can do. And uh, so we just, we celebrate that. We're grateful for that. And we're grateful for every single one of you that is contributing, whether it's serving your time over there, contributing financially. I just, I'm blown away. And I say that genuinely by just how giving this church is. So the biggest thing I want you to hear this morning is just thank you. Thank you a lot for everything that you're contributing. We believe God is going to move really powerfully in our community through the space next door. So check it out before you leave today, because there's some cool things happening over there. Uh, so we are in week five of our series, Four People, right now. And the, the kind of idea behind the series is we want to reclaim as a church what it means to be four people. Everybody knows what everybody is against these days. We want to make it clear what we stand for as a church. And so last week we spoke about what it means for older people and the older generations to invest in the younger generation. Today, I want to talk to the younger generation specifically. If you're in the older generation, you're probably going to say amen to a lot of things I say today. <laughs> but also take this as 
maybe some training for you as to how to invest in the younger generation if you are in the older generation. And if you're in the younger generation, what I want you to hear is that we believe so much in you and who you are that we're willing to do entire weeks dedicated entirely to speaking to you. Does that sound good? Cool. One per Trent's on board. That's good to know the worship pastor's on board. <laughs> uh, so I want to begin today with showing you a picture of my two youngest babies. We affectionately call them the twins. Uh, Rowan is our daughter there on the left, and Theo is our son on the right. They're about 10 months apart from each other, and man, are we reminded of that every single day that they are 10 months apart from each other. In fact, they have both developed kind of this new thing that we call the look. Any other parents know the look from your kids? It's, it's when you ask them to do something and they respond with the look, am I gonna listen to you or am I gonna not listen to you and do my own thing? For example, the other day, Theo, our little boy, he was, he was feeding animal crackers to our dog uh, which is not a huge deal, but we were like, hey, buddy, dog's at about 100 so far. It's time to stop. And uh, he kept feeding them, kept feeding them, and we were like, Theo, stop feeding the dog the animal crackers. Of course, he doesn't listen. I said, okay, if you do it again, you need to go into timeout corner. So what does he do? He, takes his, he gives us a look, first of all, and then he takes his bag of animal crackers, goes to the timeout corner, and begins feeding the dog from the timeout corner. <laughs> the animal crackers. <laughs> or let's take Rowan, for example. She's not in here anymore, is she? Okay, good. <laughs> She's going to get more ideas. Let's take Rowan, the one on the left, for a moment. Last week, Sunday, Sam was having some pictures taken by our friend Olivia, who was just up here. And uh, Rowan had Sam's phone. And so she was running all over the place with Sam's phone. And Sam had recently gotten a new iPhone. We don't get new phones hardly ever. She had gotten a, a new iPhone and uh, Rowan was running around with it. And uh, Sam was like, give me my phone back, Rowan. It's like, we got to get ready to go. Give me my phone back. Give me my phone back. And Rowan holds the phone and she gives Sam the look and she chucks it on the concrete, shatters it all over the place. Whoo, happy Mother's Day to Sam, right? A little too soon, yeah, that's, that's what Sam says. Some of you, I can see the looks on your faces right now. It's a mix of relief. Oh, the pastor's kids are just like my kids. <laughs> and then others of you have a look of judgment on your face. The pastor's kids are just like my kids? What's going on here? But here's, here's the thing, here's the deal. I think one, some of the biggest splits that are happening generationally right now, because we talked about this last week, there's divides growing between generations I think the biggest splits that we are seeing in generations right now, the tension that we see, the disagreements that we see, all can be boiled down to one single word, and it's this word right here, authority. It's the word authority. The very nature of authority is what I think is driving a lot of division between generations. In fact, there is a generation of young people, and when I say young people, I mean like millennials and Gen Z. Those are the two generations I'm speaking to right now. There are generations of young people who are looking at the person of Jesus, and they are giving him the exact same look my kids give me. I see you, Jesus. I see what you stand for. I'm not sure I want to give you authority in my life. I want Jesus 
but I don't want his authority in my life. I think that's the, that's the mindset, that's the posture of so many young people attempting to follow Jesus. And I understand where it comes from. See, our generation, we have seen authority after authority after authority just fail miserably. I'm gonna age myself for a moment here, but one of the very first memories that I have of just pop culture and stuff happening in the world was Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. Shows you how young I am, right? One of the very first memories I have in life is of an authority figure failing miserably. And we have seen that time and again in the church, in government. I can think of just even this last year, five different megachurch celebrity pastors that have just failed out of their positions of authority. Five in the last year. And there's something, I think, happening in this younger generation that sees the abuse of authority and says, I don't want anything to do with authority altogether. And can I ask you a question, younger generation, this morning? Could it be that you don't actually resist authority? You just resist abused authority. Could it be that you don't like authority because you've never actually lived under the perfectly loving kind of authority because here's what I know is true. You and I, we're, we were created to flourish under good, loving, beautiful, and perfect authority. In fact, to say you want Jesus without saying you want the authority of Jesus is to say I don't want Jesus at all. Having Jesus and having his authority in your life, he doesn't give us the option to pick and choose. It's both and. And I get it. We get intimidated by the word authority, right, as young people. We, we don't love it. We don't like it. We don't like the because I said so or the this is my position, therefore I'm an authority over you. We push back against that with everything in us. I get it. And I understand older generations don't understand that sometimes. But here's what I want you to understand about the nature of authority. If you dig into the very root of the word authority, it consists of the word author. Right? Authority and authorship go hand in hand. They have their exact same roots of the word. And so the question I want to ask the younger generation this morning is who has authority in your life? But, but think of it this way. Who is authoring your story? Who is authoring your story? Because who's authoring your story is the one who has authority in your life. Is it you? Is it a friend of yours? Is it someone you follow on social media? Who is authoring your story? Last week, we looked at the prophet Elijah. Elijah is one of the greatest prophets of Israel's entire history. Him and Moses are like top-tier prophets. And what Elijah is doing in the story that we've been looking at last week and now this week is he is passing the baton to the next generation. He is passing on his cloak of authority, his prophetic cloak, on to Elisha, who will become his protege, who will take his place. And here's something crazy about Elisha. Elisha, the one who takes over for one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history, actually ends up doing more miracles than Elijah does. In fact, Elisha has the most recorded miracles of anyone in Scripture except for Jesus himself. And so there's something about this exchange, there's something about the, the passing of the baton that changes Elisha's story forever. 
Elisha ends up performing more miracles because of this reason. I believe this is the reason alone. He embraced God's authority over his own autonomy for his life. He embraced God's authority. He let God author his story. So grab your Bibles with me, and we're going to be in 1 Kings, same passage we were in last week, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. This is what it says. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So I briefly mentioned this last week, but for Elisha to have one pair of oxen would have meant he was in the top 1% of all wealth owners in the community and the culture that he lived in. Top 1%. Elisha didn't just have one yoke of oxen, though. How many pairs did he have? 12. Which means Elisha's family is in the top 1% of the top 1%. Like Bernie Sanders would have been all over this guy for his wealth. He is stupid wealthy. His family is stupid wealthy. And so you have this guy who's got his life together. He's not a struggling college kid. He is outrageously wealthy as a young person. And Elijah comes and he tosses his cloak on Elisha and calls him to follow him. And what does Elisha do? He sets his entire past on fire and submits himself to the authority of God in his life. I remember uh, when I was, I think I was about 24, so I was still living at my parents' house, which uh, sounds old to be living there, but I saved a lot of money in college by doing that. So, uh, and I was getting ready to, to move out of my parents' house. It was, you know, a couple weeks out. And uh, so I decided it would be a good idea to, make, so, to fry some French fries in the kitchen. And so I start the oil on... And I make the mistake of putting a metal lid on the oil as it's heating up. Yeah, I know. And uh, as soon as I take the metal lid off the oil, a little spark hits, and the whole thing bursts into flames. And I mean, these flames are like, they're, they're hitting the cupboards above the, the stove. I mean, they're, they're big flames. And so I thought, oh, no, I got to put these flames out. So I rush it over to the sink, turn on the water. I mean, this white kitchen became entirely covered in, like, black. So I essentially burned their kitchen to the ground. And I knew from that moment on, there was no going back to live at home. <laughs> I was ready to leave. And whenever I read this story of Elisha, I think to myself, what did Elisha's mama think about all of this? Right? Like, can you imagine him walking into the house and going, Mama, I'm going to be a prophet. I set the farm on fire. See ya. Like, seriously? I mean, this is a pretty radical thing for Elisha to do. Sets his entire wealth on fire. If I'm his mama, I'm not going to be super happy. But here's, I think, what the issue is. We don't set our plows on fire to follow Jesus anymore. We don't burn our mama's kitchens down anymore in a no-going-back 
you are heading in this direction, you actually can't go back kind of way. Instead, I think what we've done is we've settled for a version of Jesus where I have already defined in my life what the good life is. I already know where I'm heading. I already know what I value. And in so much as I read the scriptures and Jesus agrees with me, I'll take that stuff. I'm all about the stuff that Jesus says that already agrees with what I believe is the good life. But when I come to something that actually challenges me, I don't want anything to do with that. And so at best, we've created a version of God that says, God, you might have authority, but you don't call me to actually live under that authority. You might have dominion in this world, but you don't call me to live under your dominion in this world. In fact, there's a, there's a belief system out there that has been gaining extremely fast ground in young people. It's a phrase some of you may have heard, some of you may not have heard, but it's the phrase therapeutic moralistic deism. This is a worldview that is absolutely just raging among young people right now. And 75% of people that ascribe to this worldview also call themselves Christians. And here's what this worldview is. I'll take what I like of Jesus and I'll leave what I don't. I'll take what I like of Jesus and I'll leave what I don't. God, I'm good with you healing my broken sexuality and holding my abusers accountable. I'm good with those parts. But surrendering my own broken sexuality to you, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm not going to touch that. God, I love the verses about justice and caring for the poor and the vulnerable and the outcast and the immigrant. Anything that makes my conservative parents cringe, I love those verses. But personal holiness, the calling to live a life under Jesus' authority, I don't want anything to do with that in my life. See, our separation from God has created permission for us to craft our ideal God. And this belief system that so many young people are living under, it'll massage your ego all day long. It'll make you feel real good about yourself. But life under Jesus' authority actually relieves you from the need of ego altogether. Therapeutic moralistic deism will massage your ego. Jesus relieves you of your ego. In fact, I'm, I'm just astounded when I talk to young people about how little, it's, it, it's apparent how little they're reading the teachings of Jesus because if you have a version of Jesus that doesn't offend you or uproot you in some way, you are not actually following the Jesus of the scriptures. There's a passage in John 6 where Jesus talks about being the bread of life and tons of his followers are sitting there listening to it. And, and this is what they say to Jesus. They say things like, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And you know what Jesus asks them back in John 6? Does this offend you? It's almost like, are you bothered? Because if you're not bothered, you're probably not listening to what I'm saying. I didn't come to just help you author your story in a better way. I came to write your story for you. I came to become the author of your story. And a lot of those people that were listening to Jesus, questioning his teaching, they ended up leaving because they couldn't submit to his authority in their lives. And it's in this moment where Elijah tosses his cloak onto Elisha, and Elisha has a choice to make. On one hand, I can surrender everything I have to the authority, to the lordship of God in my life. And on the other hand, 
I can stay wealthy. I can stay prosperous. You see, the surrender option, the life of a prophet, it was a life of danger. It was a life of poverty. It was a life of not a lot of worldly success. I can have that life completely surrendered to the authority and lordship of God, or I can continue plowing my yards and making a whole lot of money. And the question Elisha is faced with is who has authority in my life? I've got what I want on one hand. I got my plows. I've got my farm, my money, my career, my security, my iPhone in my hand but I'm still the author of my own story. God does not have full authority or authorship of my life. And what Elisha does is he says, I am transferring authorship of my own story to God to write my story. And Jesus actually takes this exact story of Elijah and Elisha, and he speaks about it when it comes to giving him authority. Luke 9, verse 61 through 62, says it this way. Yet another said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, uh, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let me phrase that a different way. I'm going to give you the Brad Vanderson translation of that. No one who continues to author their own story has truly grasped what the kingdom of God is like. No one who continues to hold on to and to white-knuckle grip control and authorship of their own story actually understands why Jesus came and what he came to do. Young people, I want you to listen very carefully here. I say this in a whole lot of love. When you see someone abusing their position of authority, whether it be in church, in family, in government, what that person is doing is they are trying to wrestle back authorship of their own story on the backs of other people. When somebody is abusing their position of authority, they are just trying to author their own story, and it is not of Jesus. And God makes it really clear, authorities who abuse their position will be held accountable. But here's the problem. Young people, are we confusing the abuse of authority that we see so often with the perfect loving authority of Jesus and what he offers? Are we just confusing those two things and we're rejecting the notion of authority altogether? Or are we willing to submit to the good and beautiful authority of Jesus in our lives? See, as I observe young people, can I offer just two observations of what I'm seeing pretty regularly among young people? No? Cool, I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, Two observations I want to just provide when I watch young people, because I still interact with a ton of young people. I was a youth pastor for many, many years, and this is what I'm noticing, that young people actually do submit to two types of authority. There's two types of authority that I see young people very regularly submitting themselves to. The first type of authority that young people will submit themselves to is the authority of people we believe are genuinely for us. So if I trust you, and I believe that you are genuinely for me, and I never have to question whether or not you are for me, I'll let you speak hard things into my life. I have mentors and I have friends in my life who can say some things to me that I strongly disagree with, that rub me the wrong way, that maybe offend me or hurt me in some way, But if I trust and I believe that they are for me, 
which I have people like this in my life, they can call me out on my crap all day long because I believe that they are for me. In fact, a friend who doesn't speak hard things into your life from time to time, I don't think any of us would call that person a friend. And yet this is the notion of authority that younger generations have kind of subscribed to is like the only authority that I'll submit to is authority that will affirm, affirm, affirm. And I'm here to tell you that will lead you nowhere but narcissism at the end of that road. God's authority is altogether different. And so that's the first type of authority that I see young people submitting to. Friends and mentors that they believe care for them that can still speak hard things into their lives. The second type of authority I see young people submitting to is people who they want to imitate. People they want to be like. There is a reason that social media influencer is a job that people make six, seven figures off of these days. And for those of you who don't know what a social media influencer is, think like Kim Kardashian on Instagram, okay? They don't actually do a lot of anything other than tell you what products to buy, tell you who to vote for, tell you how to think. And there's a reason why these people make millions and millions of dollars and have millions and millions of followers because other people want to imitate them. They want to be like them. Now notice how both of these things Older generation, I want to speak to you. Notice how neither of these things have anything to do with position. Neither of them have anything to do with position. Keegan, actually, if you can leave those up there, because I'm going to dissect those a little bit more here. Neither of those have any, anything to do with position. Now, I want you to think about the person of Jesus in relation to these two things. On one hand, he has the position. He is fully God. In fact, some of his last words before leaving earth is all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus has the position of authority. But that's not how he chose to primarily express that authority. He actually took that position and he made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for money. Many. Jesus' authority is expressed through his giving up of that position, through his serving of other people. And so when I look at those two things on that list, people who I genuinely believe are for me, is there a part of you young people that just believes Jesus isn't as for you as other people are? Like, is there a part of you that believes you are more for yourself than Jesus is for you? I would encourage you to dig into that a little bit. And then the second piece here is, is there a part of you who believes Jesus isn't worth imitating? Remove all of your bad experiences with church people for a second, which I know is hard to do. Look at just the person of Jesus. Is there something that you believe that says Jesus is not worth imitating in my life? Because Jesus took our notions of authority and he expressed it in a very different way. In fact, the very reason Jesus was executed by religious people in the first place had a lot to do with the model of authority he showed them. His authority was relentlessly for people and it's completely worth imitating. See, while the Pharisees were using their authority to stone sinful people, Jesus was using his authority to forgive sins and to offer freedom from that sin that the Pharisees wanted to stone people for. He's clear, you continue living in that sin, it's going to lead you inevitably to a place of destruction, but he came to offer freedom and forgiveness for the things that religious authorities just wanted to kill people for. 
And while Sadducees, another religious group in Jesus' day, were using their authority to exclude the parts of Scripture that they didn't like or that made them feel uncomfortable, they had developed a system of authority that said, we can maintain authority because of our position, but it's not going to actually cost us anything. There's no sacrifice involved. Jesus' model of authority is different than that, too, because Jesus' model of authority cost him greatly. It cost him getting to a place where he was washing other people's feet. It cost him in the sense where friends and and followers of him betrayed him and turned him over to government officials. It cost him in the form of a mock trial that was completely illegitimate. And ultimately, it cost Jesus hanging on a cross, surrendering his life for you. This is the authority of Jesus Christ played out. And I don't know about you, but that is worth following. That is worth surrendering my life to. That is worth burning the plows over. Guys, I can't speak on behalf of every single person who's hurt you in the church. I can't speak on behalf of every single person who has abused their authority in Jesus' name. But what I can say to you is I'm sorry. I'm sorry that's happened. The abuse of authority is not of God. See, God's Jesus' authority expressed, it will never abuse you. It will never coerce you. It will never manipulate you. Jesus, giving Jesus full authority and full authorship of your life, his promise is abundant life when we do that. See, Elisha could have died an old man. He could have doubled the number of oxen that he had once again. He could have gone and lived an extremely comfortable life. And I guarantee you, I would not be preaching on his story this morning. But instead, he chose a different kind of life, a life that said, I am going to burn the plows. I'm going to leave everything behind for the sake of pursuing God's authority in my life because I trust it that much. And I want to just end with, with the scripture here of this final exchange between Elijah and Elisha. This is what happens in 2 Kings verse two, chapter 2, verse 9. This is what it says. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yeah, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by the whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it, and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. Reading on here, then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Because Elisha transferred authorship of his life to God, here we see this powerful handing off of the baton as Elijah is taken up into heaven. Elisha is left with his cloak his mantle, his baton, and a choice of what to do with it. Students, young people, you are entering into this moment in your life where the church is ready to hand a baton off to you. Will you drop it? Or will you pick it up? Will you neglect it, ignore it, 
or will you hold it? And the only way to pick up the baton is to surrender yourself fully to the authority and the authorship of Jesus Christ in your life. The band's going to make their way back up here, and as they do that, I just want to close with, with this story here. Way, way a long time ago, there was a king of England who for years had been just like showered with praise and affection. This king of England, he had um, everything anybody could ever ask. He had full authority over not just his life, but the lives of everyone else around him. He was in no shortage of authority in his life. But one day he was getting so incredibly sick of all the flattery and all of the attention on him. He was, to be quite honest, sick of being the center of everybody else's world. His name is King Canute. And so what he did is he had his subjects take his throne from his palace and go set it on the shores of the beach. And as the tide washed in, he began commanding the tide, saying, don't come any further. Don't touch my throne. This is mine. And so he began commanding the sea, and shockingly, the sea did absolutely nothing. It came and it touched his throne. It surrounded him. And so what he did in that moment is he took off his crown, never to wear it again, and he placed it on a statue of Jesus being crucified. And what King Canute realized in that moment is I don't actually have all that much authority over anything. I'm not the one who the wind and sea obeys. And if there's anything this last year has taught me, we, we actually don't have as much control or authority over much of anything in this life. So young people, I hope if COVID teaches you anything, because COVID's taught me a lot, it's that you are not the best author of your story. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus can write a better story for you than you can? And the question I want to end with for you today is, will you transfer authorship of your story to Jesus? Will you transfer authorship of your story to Jesus? Young people, there are two ways I want to ask you to do that this morning. Number one is find an adult who loves Jesus and bring a list of three to four questions that you have about anything. Life, faith, work, calling, anything you can imagine. Find an adult that loves Jesus and bring a list of three to four questions. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I don't know where I would find an adult to do that. And I will say to you right now, I will make time available to do that with you personally. And I know we have staff here at the church who love Jesus a lot, who are not all that older than you. I think of people like Josh and Olivia. I think of people like Trish and Trent here what you'll find is that when you do this with people, we are probably not going to have a lot of the answers to the questions that you have. We might have some of them. We might have lessons that we've learned. But what I think you'll discover is that authority can actually be good and loving and beautiful. That our authority isn't based on our position. It's actually based on our ability to serve and love other people. And you'll discover people who love you and love Jesus a lot. And then the second thing I want to ask young people to do is find a community of peers who love Jesus and submit yourself to the authority of that community of peers. 
Submitting yourself to the authority of a community is one of the best things that you could possibly do. A community of people that is for you, a community of people that can disagree with you and you're not just going to leave when that happens, that you're willing to stick around and stay and wrestle with that community because you know they love you and they love Jesus. So find an adult and find a community. We have both of those things here ready and available for you. And adults in the room, older generation, be those adults. Be that community with those students. Let's pray together as we close. God, you are so good to us. And, uh, man, I think about just even the way that you have impacted so many lives in this community, God. Think about the ways in which your authority has maybe been abused or thwarted for selfish purposes. God, we repent of that. We ask you to forgive us of that. And God, I want to pray for this generation of young people a generation who I believe is our greatest opportunity for revival. God, I pray that this generation will learn the difference between good and beautiful and loving authority and the authority that abuses and coerces God. And I pray that they will, like never before, submit themselves to good, loving authority, the authority that is found in you. And so, God, we love you. And this morning, we honor you and we praise you. And we give you full authority over our lives and over our church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen.